We are in Deuteronomy right now and coming to the close of this series on the Pentateuch. And we're looking at the Ten Commandments again. In the spring, we looked at it in Exodus. And here again, like Mark read for us, uh, Moses gives the commandments a second time to the people of Israel, to the second generation now, receives these words. And really, as you walk through those commandments, and for many of us, they're very familiar. Uh, For others of us, they're not very familiar. But I mean, this is really some of the most well-contained wisdom for living and for ethics that you're going to find. It's incredibly simple, right? All of them can be understood, but they're also incredibly complex as you start to work out what each commandment or each word means or, or how it would affect you. On some levels, they feel very constraining. It's a lot of don'ts, don't do these things. But on the other hand, they're also incredibly life-giving so that things go well for you, so that you will flourish. They're also fairly straightforward and easy in a lot of ways, but then also for those of us who have been religious or grown up religious, we also feel the weight of these instantly and recognize how impossible it feels while it also seems so straightforward and so easy. Moses is going to interpret them in chapter 6 for us, but even without that interpretation, you can see that the the Ten Commandments really do break into two groups, and they are pretty straightforward. Jesus will say this at the end in the Gospels when he's asked to summarize what is the law. He'll say it really is loving God and loving others, and those first commandments are all have to do with our relationship with God. As Mark read, like we are to have no other God's besides Yahweh, because why would you, right? The, the, the text really just implies like any other God would just be strange and foreign. Like no other God delivered you. Why would you worship a different God? You should worship the God who delivered you. You should worship the God who saved you. You should worship the God that is your God, who has shown up for you time and time and time again, and who has delivered you and is leading you. This is your God. Any other God, if you worship another God, it's just crazy. Like why would you do that? You should make no image of a God, nor should you worship those images of gods. But again, because we're going to have these temptations or the dangers, you know, we'll look at this of like, what would be the opposite, right? It's easy to forget about God and to start worshiping other ones. It's also even easy to forget or not feel like God is near. That's been one of these, one of these things God continually tries to show his people over and over how close he is to them. But when he's not near to us, We want something close, and so we will make an image, or we want something tangible, physical, and real, or feels real that I can worship in this moment. We are to not worship any image of anything in creation. We're not to falsely call on the name of the Lord, right? This idea of this hypocritical calling on God when we really don't worship him or want him, but I call on him to save me in these moments of distress you know, saying, what are you doing, right? Why would you call on the name of the Lord in vain? If you're going to call on the name of the Lord, call on the name of the Lord, but don't use him like some sort of magic talisman. Don't treat him like all the other gods get treated, right? Yahweh is distinct and holy and very different. And that final commandment centering around the love of God is that you are to remember the Sabbath. One day a week, Take some time and worship the Lord. Remember him. Remember who you are. Remember what he has done for us. And 
As we've been working through these narratives, you recognize the need for that for the people and for us. Of like, It's incredible how forgetful they are. It's incredible how forgetful we are. And if I don't take time, if I'm not intentional, this is everything in our lives, right? If we're not intentional, if I don't have it set, if I'm not going to make efforts to really continually do something, I will not do it. And I will forget. God's admonition to his people, if you love the Lord your God, remember him. Remember him. Remember that he is the one who called you out, who brought you by his mighty hand out of slavery. So love the Lord your God. And then the second half of the commandments are all about loving other people. You are to love the Lord your God. You are to treat him unlike all the other gods because he is holy. He is the one who saved you. He is the one who rescued you, that gives you the supply, your needs. He is the one who is close to you. And then you are to treat people in light of that, you're to honor your parents, not dishonor them, not to abandon them. You're not to murder. In our anger, in our hatred, we are not to strike out. We're not to take vengeance ourselves. We are not to commit adultery. We are not to steal. We are not to bear false witness, accuse people of things just for the sake of our own benefit. And we're not to covet. And Moses goes through a pretty long list of all of the things to not covet. We are not to desire other people's things for ourselves. And if you follow this, if we follow this commandment, if the people follow these things, they will stand out in culture and in the world. Then, and obviously it's true today as well, right? because the opposite of all these commandments is what is natural and is what we all naturally want to do and what we see happening throughout culture then and now. Religious hypocrisy, right? I believe in Yahweh. I love Yahweh. But I mean but the life that follows that looks nothing like someone who is devoted to God or following God. Using people for our own benefits. I claim to believe in a God who provides, who is near. This world is not a world of scarcity. He'll always give me what I need. But I'm going to treat people like they are disposable. And I'm going to use every relationship I can for my own benefit. My parents, my neighbors, my spouse, everyone is just here to serve me. And that's how I'm going to live. That's natural. That's how our world lives. They may claim to believe in some higher power. They may claim to believe in God. But they won't live in a consistent worshiping way. And they will use other people for their own benefits. And the second generation is called to live this out as they go into the land. And this call to the people, and it is striking the way it started. You know, if you look at how, how, when Mark was reading it, Moses saying, like, this was given to us, he wants to say. But that second generation wasn't there. They weren't on the mountain. They weren't the ones who were afraid to go up. And then Moses came down and he gave them the Ten Commandments. But now he tells them, this is still the same word to us, second generation, who hasn't done that same thing. And it really is this effort then of Moses showing, like, this has always been God's plan and intention for his people. This is the command of life. We were designed for this coming out of Genesis. This was always the plan. This was always his intention, that we would love others, that we would be a blessing to the nations, that we would treat people in such a way that would make God's name praised. This has always been the case. It's not a means of salvation, the Ten Commandments, Clearly, because they were saved already when they were pulled out of Egypt. It's also not a punishment for their lack of faith at the mountain. This has always been 
the plan and the purposes of God. They were made for this. They were redeemed for this. This is the life that God has called his people to live. A life of wholeheartedness, of devotion and love to God and love of others. And if they are to follow these commands, these words, these instructions, things will go well for them in the land, like George preached last week. They will be a blessing to the nations. The people will see them, and they will see these people and the way that they treat God, the wholeheartedness of their lives, and how they treat other people, and they will find it attractive. But as we get into chapter 6, right, and that was the, the verse Mark read, and we're going to look at chapter 6 more next week too, Moses interprets all of this. As he looks back over the law, he is quick to point out to the people that this is not just a simple ethical law. These aren't just rules that we are to follow. And if you follow these rules, things will go well for you in the land. But rather, he says that we are to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. That is the fulfillment of this law, of this commandment. That it has to come out of a love. God's intention for his people has always been that they would love him, that they would fear him, that they would worship him the way that he deserves, that they would live these wholehearted lives of devotion to him, that we would respond to God's redemption of us with faith, with love, a heart that fully trusts God. That's always it. And so the intention then of the commandments Moses interprets for the people because the people need these interpretations regularly, right, is that this is not just an ethical list, but rather they are to come out of an overflowing of the love of God in our hearts, that we are to love him with our entire being, and then these laws will be a joy to follow, these commands. It's out of love, out of a heart that loves God. The problem with this, right, for Israel and for us, is that we would, we're, we would much rather keep the Ten Commandments as a list of ten ethical laws to follow. That's the way we like to work if we see things numbered. And they're not even numbered in the text, but we quickly number these into ten. And there's different tens depending on what denomination you come out of. Um, but we want ten. We want a clear list. We want to be able to check off which rule I'm following or which rule I'm not following, but at least it's just an ethical guideline. Because if it's just an ethical guideline, well, look, every religion has an ethic. Every religion has pretty much the same ethic. Yeah, devotion to your God, treat other people fairly. Okay, sounds good. And if it stays as just an ethical guideline, we can either completely disregard it as, well, it doesn't really matter if I follow the Ten Commandments or if I follow the Eightfold Noble Path of Buddhism. I mean, which one really, it's the same. I can disregard them all equally and live a life of relativism, right? That just says, well, I can pursue whatever I want to find my own happiness, to find my own blessing. Yeah, it says if I follow these commands, life will go well for me, but there's a lot of things I can follow, and it seems like life will go well for me. We pursue our own blessings through our own means. The other reaction many of us have to lists or to rules or if you give me 10 things, and you promise me at the end that if I do these things, life will go well for me. So one was to just throw that off. Some of us are that way. of like, mm, I'll show you. I can, life will go well for me if, if I don't follow that rule. 
Others of us are like, all right, I'm all in. I will religiously follow these rules. If this is what I'm supposed to do, it's really clear from the text, we are supposed to follow these Ten Commandments. And if I do, things will go well. Well, now I will do them. I will earn God's blessing through following this ethic. I will expect things to go well for me because I have followed these blessings, or I followed these laws. And in both ways, in both postures, treating it, treating the Ten Commandments as a set of rules I don't have to follow, or treating the Ten Commandments as a rules for living that guarantee a righteous, good life, in both ways, I can like God, I can believe in God, I can be thankful to God, I can even seek Him, I can even want Him, but I don't have to love Him. Because all I have to do is just want the things from Him. I can ultimately be God. I can ultimately still seek my own blessings, either through following this law or by disregarding this law, but I'm the one who is seeking the blessing. I'm the one in the driver's seat. I'm the one who can control everything around me. If things are going bad in my life, I can control this. I can make things happen by doing these things. But the Ten Commandments is calling the people to have a wholehearted trust and love for God that's going to overflow in every aspect of our life and in our behavior. To love God with all of your heart. That's where it is. It's like this, the commandments are straightforward and easy on the front end. But as you work through, and then as Moses interprets, and then as Jesus interprets later in the Gospels too, it is impossibly hard. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart would mean I would actually give over to the Lord and trust him with everything. With my sin and with my successes with my disappointments and my hopes, with my fears and my joys. I would give him everything. And it feels impossible to do this consistently. Because I think that's, and that's Israel's issue, right? They're just inconsistent in this love for the Lord. We tend to love the Lord like this in fits, in starts and stops, where we have these moments of like, oh, I am all in, God, and I love you, and I love the fact that you love me, and you have redeemed me, and I'm going to respond in faith and in trust of you. And then that diminishes, and we go back to our own lives and pursuing our own righteousness, our own blessings. There's times of love followed by times of doing it yourself. We believe in God, but we're still ruled by fears, by our own efforts to control. Even within this chapter 5, after Moses gives the law, God speaks with Moses and says, like, if only the people always had this kind of heart. Because they, they respond well. They, they respond well to God often through the Pentateuch. After the golden calf, they respond really well. You're right, we will build that tabernacle, and they are all in on building the tabernacle and are excited to build the tabernacle. And it, Moses describes that they give offerings for the building of the tabernacle out of a genuine and sincere heart. They want to worship God. They do feel bad for their sin. They've confessed it, and they, they seek him. After Moses gives this law again to the people, to the next generation, they earnestly respond, yes, 
we will do everything you have told us, Moses. We love Yahweh. We love God. He is the one who has called us out. Yes, we are all in. And then they fail to consistently have that heart. There's a consistency issue. There's a heart issue within Israel that they just don't have hearts that can consistently dedicate themselves to Yahweh and do what is right out of that motivation. I mean, hopefully that feels very similar. I mean, that is all of us are in that same place. It feels almost impossible for me to be able to be consistent in my love for the Lord. George mentioned last week, right, that the, what will be a blessing to the world as we go forward into the land as Israel, and we will, it's not going to be imitating Christ that wins people over to Christ, or that's not the call, but rather it's going to be our ability to abide in Christ. This is for Israel as well. The hope for Israel is not that they will be able to check off the list of ethical commands, but will they as a people fear the Lord? Will they love God? Will they have hearts that love God? They're going to need some sort of substantial change in them to be able to do this. Which the text tells us. Moses is going to tell them that multiple times throughout the Pentateuch. And we're going to see it eventually here at the end too in chapter 30 when he really has a frank conversation with the people and says, you're just, you're, they all say we're going to do this. And he just tells them, you're not. You won't do this until you get new hearts, until you get some sort of change in you. There needs to be a substantive, actual change and a reordering of your heart, or you will not love the Lord like this. You will say you love God. You will worship God at times. You will believe in him. You will like him. You will even seek him. But you will not love him. You will not be able to abide in him. You will not be able to trust him without that heart change. I think as a, as a reader of the text, you are wondering, right, like what will ever change these people? Right, what would ever change anybody in this kind of way? How do we get reordered? How do I get new hearts? Right, like that idea, for Moses just to throw that out there, it's for, for Christians, sometimes a lot of this just sounds Christianese, and like, oh yeah, new hearts, this makes sense. But it doesn't make sense. Right, like, how does somebody get a new heart? How does someone reorder these types of things? It, it, it's very difficult to understand what that would mean. And I think what we're getting the picture of through the Pentateuch, and we're going to get it through all of Scripture, and we see it in our lives. The only thing, and Deirdre and I argued this week about, is it the only thing? I'm going to go with it. The only thing that can change a heart is sacrificial love. Like true, costly, substitutionary, sacrificial love. I think it's the only thing that can really reorder your heart change the way you actually feel towards someone or something. I mean, there's a lot of things that can bring us low and make us decide we want to change our lives, right? Like hitting rock bottom, getting confronted, disappointments. There's a lot of things like that, absolutely, that'll change us in our behavior. But what can change a heart? I think it comes through costly love. And I think we see that in a lot of examples just in, in, our, in the world, right? You think about like a parent, the parent's love of a child changes children's hearts, right? Like, 
because it's costly to be a parent. And when a parent takes on that price, absorbs the insults, the time, the work, the energy to love someone else like a child, that leaves a mark on them forever, and it changes them. It changes their desires. You think about, for many of us, the love of a friend in our life has changed us or transformed us. When someone will take on our junk, will enter into our suffering, take it upon themselves and still be with us, that changes us. The love of a spouse, I mean, for many of us, right, this has really reordered our lives. When someone will willingly take on my weaknesses and my limitations, sees me in my sin, and still loves me, it changes me. It changes our hearts. It leaves this kind of mark. I'm going to give an example, which is maybe heretical, but Harry Potter. Yeah, this is dangerous. I don't think I've ever used Harry Potter before. I don't know your feelings towards it. I'm pro. I like Harry Potter. But if, if you remember the first book or the first movie, you know, young Harry, the Voldemort character is like occupying this guy's body. And anyway, he tries to kill Harry at the end, but he can't touch him. Like it burns when he touches him. And after, at the end of the movie, you know, Harry talks to, to Dumbledore about this, you know, like, why couldn't he touch me? And if you know the story, right, Harry's mother died sacrificially for Harry. And Dumbledore says, when someone loves you that much, when your mother's love for you was so deep and sacrificial that that kind of love leaves a mark on somebody that will go with them forever. There's power in that kind of love he gives. It's true. When someone sacrifices for us, it leaves a mark. So what kind of love would it take or will it take to permanently change hearts, it would have to take an incredible amount of sacrificial love to change our hearts. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses tells the people, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your life. God will circumcise your heart, he tells them, and your children after you. God does this work. God will do the work we won't. You can't, we can't change our own hearts. If we hear this command to love the Lord with all of our heart, but I just can't do it, the answer isn't more effort. Moses doesn't tell the people, just try harder to love God. Just work on it more. Just follow the commitment. Just fake it till you make it. If you just keep going, eventually your heart will change. No, he tells them, right? The Lord your God will change your heart. It's the people's response to respond to God's work, not to do God's work. God's sacrificial and substitutionary love for us changes our hearts. For them, there's, there was always these precursors, these pointers, these hopes of that throughout the Pentateuch with the sacrificial system, with mediators, people sacrificing for them constantly. So they understood it and they experienced it. But for us on this side of Jesus Christ, we now have the fullness and can see the full cost and price of our redemption. 
Jesus Christ came and died in our place. He suffered everything that we suffer. Everything that we suffer. So we would have cause to trust him in every circumstance. He knows what it's like to not have food or water. He knows the fears and insecurities that we all feel. Physical insecurities, family insecurities, and pain and drama, the hurts and pain of all of those things, being abandoned and alone, physical torture. He, he gets everything, right? Like Jesus knows every pain, every suffering that we have. He took the curse that we deserve and he gave the blessing that we did not deserve and gives it freely to us. He dies in our stead. And this affects us. It affects the disciples. It affects us. Our desire to love God and to love others has to come out of a heart that loves. When we meditate and really think of the cost of our redemption, of God's work, because this is it. Paul will talk about this throughout the New Testament, of Jesus' death and resurrection was a circumcision of our hearts, that this is it, that this is how we get new hearts, is through Jesus' death and resurrection. Like, it's available to us. It's been done for us. But I have to remember, I do have to meditate on the cost of my salvation, this love that was given for me. And that love reorders my heart. It reorders my thinking. It reorders my priorities. And now my desire to love God and to love other people does genuinely come out of love because I have been so redeemed. I have been purchased. I am not my own. My ability to follow his commandments is still in question. But that was never the point, was our ability to always consistently follow God or do what he has commanded us to do. That'll never be consistent. We're never going to be consistent with that. I will always fail because I am weak and in the flesh. Right? I will fail God multiple, multiple, multiple times. But I have Christ's heart, which means I can live wholeheartedly. I can trust God. As I remember his redemption of me, the forgiveness of sins, that he took my place, I'm freed from guilt and from shame, and I can trust him. I can trust him with my successes, and I can trust him with my failures. God does the work. I respond to God's work with wholeheartedness. If you struggle, if, we, if you struggle with laws and commandments, I know I should forgive, but I can't forgive. I know I should do these things, but I can't. Or I am all in. I, I just can't not follow God's law. <laughs> I feel like it's oppressive to me. You need, we need, all of us need this heart to be transformed. We need to tap into this heart that God has given us through Jesus Christ. The spirit that is in us is the same spirit that was in Jesus Christ. Reflecting on the love that God has shown us, reflecting on the cost of our salvation, and remembering Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection reorders our hearts and enables us. It's the only thing that we have that can enable us to live this wholehearted life in this world, a life that's free from hypocrisy. Right? I don't have to be a hypocrite any longer because God loves me. 
I can just trust him. I can give to him my fears and my success. I can give him my failures. I can give him my hopes. The gospel of Jesus Christ reorders our hearts in such a way that we can stop trying to fulfill God's word. We can stop trying to earn the blessings and we can trust God wherever we are in our lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your great love for us. Lord, we are never fully going to grasp or comprehend the cost of our salvation. The fact that you would willingly die for us, that you would redeem us, a people who actively work against you, that we're not seeking you, but we're actually working against you in creation, Lord, that you would love us so much that you would send your son for us, to offer him up as a sacrifice for us. Lord, that you would redeem us, that you would bring us into your family, that you would give us these new identities as your sons and daughters that you are fully pleased with, that you would give us your spirit in us to help direct and to guide, to bring us back to the truth Lord, thank you. Lord, we recognize our weakness. Our weakness is always in front of us. But Lord, we also are overwhelmed by your great love for us. Lord, help us and strengthen us. Strengthen us, Lord, to not be overwhelmed by the heartaches and disappointments and, and sin. Lord, but to be overwhelmed by your redemption and by your love. Lord, strengthen us to know your salvation and to know you more and more. Lord, we do, we long to have consistent hearts. Lord, we long to be a people who are wholehearted in our devotion to you. Lord, we recognize that the only way we're going to do that is through your work in us, not through our work. And Lord, we know that you are at work and that you are working in us and through us in our suffering, and in our success. Lord, we want to give you all of it. We want to live wholehearted. We want to worship you with our whole being. Lord, thank you that you make that possible through your son. Lord, strengthen us and bless us as a church. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.